I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? And welcome back to Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. I am Mike Sealski from the Philadelphia Inquirer, rejoined this week by current and former producer Jonathan Tannenwald. Say hello to everyone, John. Hello to everyone. Uh, and joining us from Clearwater, uh, my partner, uh, basking in the sun down there uh, with the Phillies during spring training, Dave Murphy from the Daily News. Dave, say hello to the people. Howdy, people. So let's start with this. Um, you've been down oh, there. What? We're just, we're just, we're just. That's it. We're just going to mention the fact, casually mention the fact that Jonathan Tannenwald is back in the studio and not give the people any like. And what's going on, Jonathan? Well, what, what wait doing? a minute. I didn't want to make. Let me jump in. I don't want to make more of this than than it was. I mean, I, I've you know, my feeling is that a producer should be kind of just a silent, efficient cog in the machinery of a great podcast. So I wanted to get right to your well, expertise with respect to the Phillies. Well, we're talking about a uh, remarkably substandard podcast. So <laughs> what, what you just described, I think, uh, doesn't really fit what we are. But anyway, I would like to say hello to Jonathan. Um, Go right ahead, then. People, people still feel feel free to address all of your Jonathan Tannenwald fan mail. Um <laughs> to the office across from the conference room at 801 Marketplace. Um, Market he's Street. Still number, he's, still, he, he's still part of our podcast in our hearts. No, please today. send them to Marketplace because uh, then they won't I'm, get here. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy to welcome him back. Okay. So you're down in Clearwater. You've been down there a couple days, and I think since Sunday. You've had a chance to hear from Matt Klentak, Philly's GM, you know, Andy McPhail, the president, talked to a few players, talked to Pete McCann and the manager. Has there been anything that they've said so far – that has surprised you, that has kind of um, struck you as, hey, I didn't anticipate hearing that um, based on the way the offseason had gone and based what we all kind of think the direction of the franchise is going to be? Uh, I don't know if I would say surprised. Um, I don't know if I would use that word. But it, it, I found it interesting, and I wrote about this a little bit the other day. Um, Andy McPhail mentioned um, mentioned kind of some of the reconnaissance that the Phillies have been doing on some, you know, members of future free agent classes whom they might at some point have an ability to swing a trade for. And he said, he said something along the lines of, you know, Matt, referring to Matt Klintek, he said, Matt has his targets already, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not really, it wasn't anything newsworthy or earth-shattering, but, they, you know, they don't often... They, they like to talk around that kind of stuff a lot of times, so I was... I uh, I guess I was slightly surprised at that. But, you know, like, right now, they're... they're it's really kind of anticlimactic, the first day of, of pitchers and catchers. Um, really, all they're doing is, is you know, taking soft-toss batting practice, um, the catchers, and the pitchers every other day are throwing 30 pitches off a mound. Um, and then everything else is just like pitchers practicing covering first base, um, you know, bunting practice, uh, sliding practice, you know, just a lot of stuff that, I mean, I guess if you're a baseball diehard, you might find interesting, but 
you know, let's I read, be honest. I mean, David, David, David Wells was a major league pitcher. Like, uh, the only thing that really matters is whether you can throw 95 miles an hour or not. Yeah, it was interesting. I was. I mean, like, what's, what's, go ahead. what's Bartolo Colon going to learn during pitcher fielding practice? That uh, like, what, what insights are you going to glean from watching Bartolo Colon? Uh, you know, chub his way over to first base. So, <laughs> yeah, but he might practice like flipping the baseball backward to first base. You know, behind his back, um, the way he did that. He uh, might, and I, and I have no doubt if you were down here, you would find the beauty and romance in it. But for me, it's just a waste of time. And uh, I like watching. I like watching the bullpen sessions. Well, it's it's interesting. I was on um, Twitter earlier today, and somebody, uh, an NFL agent, tweeted out an old quote from Bino Cook. Um, the longtime college football analyst for ESPN, former you know SID at Pitt, and the and the the quote was, "Pitchers and catchers report the four most depressing words in sports." Um, so, <laughs> you know, Bino being a big football guy, um, you know, I thought you might appreciate that. Get let's get back to what you said about McPhail because you did write a column about this the other day. I, uh-huh. I are what sort of situations do you think? Based on, let, let's put it this way: pretend you're the general manager um, that that the Phillies actually took you up on the offer, or the offer slash boast that you made a couple years ago that you could be a better general manager than Ruben Amaro, um, and hired you. That was not that was not a boast. That was a statement of fact. Okay, <laughs> um, and you're the GM. What sort of scenarios or players would you be keeping an eye on? in terms of uh, a trade deadline move that you think the Phillies might make? Not necessarily in the sense of, hey, we're going to make a wild card push this season, but perhaps in the sense of, um, hey, there's a guy who is not long for this particular team. They're not really going anywhere with him. Um, you know, Mike Trout is kind of the obvious example of that, you know, that he's a great player, you know, maybe amongst the best players ever. Um, but the Angels haven't been particularly good, so maybe it's better for them to move on for him and get what they can for him. Are, are there situations out there, or players out there, that you're kind of keeping an eye on? Uh, I mean, I think we're still kind of in, in a point in time where you have to talk abstractly about where the Phillies are headed because so much depends on whether guys like Nick Williams, Jorge Alfaro, Aaron Nola, Jake Thompson... Tommy Joseph. I mean, it it so much depends on what they end up doing. Um, You know, Michael Saunders is a guy who uh, a few of us talked today, talked to today in the clubhouse. And he once upon a time, I don't know if you you read on Philly.com or if it's been posted on Philly.com yet, but um, uh, Michael Saunders had his bags packed in, in in December of 2009 because he had been told that he had been traded to the Phillies in that Cliff Lee deal. Um, And he was he, he was at the time a, a very high, very highly regarded Mariners prospect, and you know we, we talked to him a little bit about the struggles that even a great prospect can go through over the over the few years over his first three years in, in the majors, and we saw it last year with Mike Alfranco, um, and you, and I think a team that kind of gets at what I'm getting at is the Kansas City Royals, where. You know they were a lot like the Phillies in the sense that they had a lot of a lot of, a lot of prospects, a great farm system that was highly regarded for a long time. They were picking high in the draft year after year after year. Um, you know, and it took guys like Mike Mustakis, um, Eric Hosmer. You know, you know, I, I can't name them individually, but 
Um, you know, they missed on a few picks, but it also took them like three or four years at times to like find their, their, their stride. Um, and Saunders, you know, really struggled for his first two or three years um, before, you know, finally having his first year as like an, an average, at least an average major league hitter. Um, you know, and he hasn't had a great career, but, but, um, you know, it kind of speaks to that. I mean, we talk about these, pro- it's not like the NFL where you, you, you go out and draft, you know, I mean, other teams, put this way, it's not like other teams in the NFL where they go out and draft the first round draft pick and he comes in and he can right. you know, compete right away. That's not necessarily something that, um, Philadelphia fans might understand, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like nobody knows if JP Crawford's ever going to be any good. Um, you know, nobody knows if Michael Franco's ever, you know, we mm-hmm. all think that Michael Franco last year was just a down year, but, um, you know, a guy that he's been compared with a lot is Edwin Encarnacion. And look at the beginning of Edwin Encarnacion's career. I mean, he had he would have a couple good years and then a couple bad years. And then, you know, it's really, I think, the five-year mark, you know, which, which is we found with quarterbacks might be might apply to all athletes where you're not really, you don't really become who you are until, until your fifth year. So um, I think that's why timetables are tough to, you know, really talk about. Um, what was the original question? <laughs> no, you, 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 I mean, you had mentioned, I think, Giancarlo Stanton in in the column. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, I, well, all right. So anyway, so so generally, I would, I would, as a general manager, or or I, w- I would pretty much be doing what it, it sounds like the Phillies are doing, which is saying, look, we're going to look to upgrade our roster at all times, um, whether that's at the trade deadline, whether that's you know in mid-April. Um, I just think you have to, to add talent. I always go back to the, the trade that the Cubs made for Anthony Rizzo. Um, you know, and they traded, they traded the guy who would have been the equivalent of like a Vince Velasquez um, in, in Andrew Kashner. Um, the Cubs, you know, he was a highly regarded prospect, big thrower, blah, 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 had already played in the majors, but was still very young. And, and for a rebuilding team, you know, you don't necessarily think of, um, you don't think of, trades as you know trading away one of your guys but they ended up getting anthony rizzo who's been just a, a cornerstone right so essentially i would always be put it this way i would always be on the lookout for a number a a in their in their prime number one starter and middle of the order bat and if that requires you know like you said like a john carlos stanton or a manny machado or i mean there's all all kinds of guys out there and, and the phillies have enough quantity in their farm system right now where you know, who, who knows what they might be able to do? Um, you know, Andy McPhail said the other day, and, and, and it's very, and Clintac repeated it today, it's a very accurate appraisal of their system. They have numbers. You know, they have, they have a ton right. of guys, a ton of talent. Like, they're 40-man. They're going to have to, you know, there's not a lot of easy decisions to make even just to get guys on the 40-man at this point. But they, but they lack, you know, that, that real high-end talent. Even Michael Franco really doesn't project as, um, you know, he projects more as like a five or six hole hitter on a great team, you know? Um, so you always have to be on the lookout for those guys. And the Phillies are at a point, I think where they, they can, um, you know, they have, they have the wherewithal to be looking, but it would, to me, it would have to be a guy who, you know, is still very much at the beginning of his prime and, and they would be able to control for, for a long time. Yeah. To me, that was always, um, the smart thing about the Cole Hamels trade, um, that one of the, you know, rare things, I guess, that Ruben Amaro Jr. got right, which was um, the even though they didn't get any of the, the players who the Rangers had deemed among their top three prospects, they got a lot of prospects. And, you know, 
that whole idea of keeping as many arrows in your quiver as possible um, because you never know which one might end up hitting the bullseye, um, you know, that kind of gets to what you're talking about, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, like, like look, for example, so, like, the, the Ranger Strait is an interesting one just because I was looking at, at it for some reason the other day, and a guy, the guy, one of the guys who was mentioned at the time um, as, like, their must-have prospect um, was a guy, named, there, you know, there was obviously Joey Gallo, mm-hmm. um, who, who had a very uh, explosive Major League debut, but I, I has not really done much since, I don't think. Uh, but then the other guy, and the guy who I'm talking about, is, was a guy named uh, Nomar Mazzara. Right. And he, uh, you know, there was a, and, and it was always said that the Rangers would not trade him the same way the Dodgers would not trade Corey Seager. Um, and in both cases, you've, you've you know, you, you can see why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mazzara came up last year and had just had a great, he was one of these guys who just hit the ground running. Um, same thing with Seager, same thing with... Um, you know, Rizzo, Bryant, that's what the Phillies lack um, in their system. And if they have an opportunity to, to acquire a guy like that, like, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of this is scouting, um, but that's the guys like that. I would be looking at, you know, at all levels of, of, you know, whether it's the minors, whether it's their, whether they're still under their club control years, whether they're in their arbitration years or whether they're like, um, like a, uh, I'm sorry, like a Jean Car- you know, like a John Carlos Stanton. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously an extreme example, but uh, you know, I think there's probably some other guys out there that that uh, you know they they you need that you need those players to win championships, and um, you know, like the guy take like Nick Williams and and uh, Jorge Alfaro, two of the guys they got from the Rangers um, instead of Mazzara. The reason why the Rangers were willing to give up those two guys is because they've got a lot. There's a lot more of a question about whether they'll right. ever even be, you know, they're more Dominic Brown types where they kind of right. have like a glaring um, question or glaring hole in their game that they need to answer. And that's, and I asked Clintac about this today. It's about their walk rate, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, they both strike out a lot, yeah. uh, especially Alfaro. And I yeah. thought, you know, I, I was looking at Nick Williams line this year. He, he only drew, I think, 19 walks last year. Oh, w- um, Williams was Williams. You pretty much a pitcher has to turn around and throw the ball in the center field four times to walk him. Right. It's incredible. But so, like, so, so, like, you know, yeah, the Phillies have quantity, but you know, they none of them might might end up hitting, which I which <laughs> which is what ended up uh, happening for the Royals there for a time. Alex Gordon was another one, I think, for yeah. the Royals that took a little while to uh, to get going. Uh, so yeah, so I, put it this way, I would, I would, I would, I think they're at a point where I would always be looking to move more towards, you know, elite level players. If it, even if it means sacrificing guys who, um, you know, multiple guys who who might, you know, might yet work out. You, you wrote like, for about example, if, if an Anthony Rizzo, if, if if an Anthony Rizzo became available, and uh, you know, somebody was asking, uh, if, if an Anthony Rizzo circa whatever, 2011 when he was still a Padres prospect became available is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, became available, then like, yeah, you, you think about trading a Vince Velasquez and a, uh, you know, whatever, somebody else. That, that, those are the kinds of things I think. That's the next stage personnel-wise that, that the Phillies are, are entering. And a lot of, a, a lot of the specifics will, will come down to how, um, you know, guys like Tommy Joseph and Cesar Hernandez and, uh, you know, the guys currently up there, you know, are playing. You, you wrote about uh, Hector Neris today, who had a terrific season 
uh, out of the bullpen last year. Averaged close to 12 strikeouts per nine innings pitched. You know, had a decent ERA. Really, as you wrote, kind of overpowered hitters in the National League. There was a time in baseball where a guy like that, a team would say, hey, there's our closer of the future. Uh, nowadays, not so much um, because of, you know, the the kind of adjusted value that we that more and more teams put on the closer role. Uh, stop, stop being a general manager, start being a manager. How would you deploy Neris this season if you were Pete McCannon? Um, you know, the guys in the press box, were, some of the other writers were talking a lot about that yesterday, not narrow specifically, but just the, you know, I guess, I guess, uh, Pete McCannon said yesterday that John Mark, you know, John Mark, John Mark Gomez is my closer at this point. Um, and I guess when, when they, when they had signed Benoit, I guess, I guess over the offseason, McCannon and, and Matt Klentak had said something slightly different, uh, you know, that there will be a competition. Uh, I don't, I, I just think that's stuff that doesn't really matter at this point for this team. Um, you know, like I, like Klintak said today, and I'm kind of in lockstep with him here. Um, I guess why I like the guy is he pretty much thinks like I do. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, like he said, like look, there's a, uh, you know, there's there's seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. The seventh, eighth, and ninth innings of a save situation game are all equally important, and it really doesn't matter who pitches where. Uh, I mean, he didn't say that in so many words, but that's mm-hmm. essentially what he was getting at. I mean, look, if, if the Phillies had, you know, at the end of a game, uh, Hector Nair should be pitching in the eighth or ninth inning. Um, and I think that's where he'll be pitching yeah, as long as he's pitching like he did last year. Uh, same thing with Joe Joaquin Benoit. I mean, if, if, if everybody is healthy and performing at their peak, then to me, Nairis and Benoit, you know, and uh, Ramos kind of like go through, I mean, we saw it with Ryan Matson, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just don't – I think there's value in having having a closer, you know. Um, like, sure, there's a little added pressure in the ninth inning, I guess. But, like, the Phillies just aren't – it's a pressure that only matters to, like, six teams in the majors. You right. know, I mean, the Phillies just aren't that team right now. Uh, last thing for me, um, and then – I mean, do you agree? Uh, do you no, agree? I, I agree with you. I, I think, I mean, you know, having – pinpointing somebody as a closer right now – is ridiculous given the expectations for this team. Yeah, I just think um, it doesn't matter. And right, like and if they exceed those, that, right, if they exceed those expectations, then you adjust accordingly. You know, if they well exceed those expectations, then you adjust accordingly. But uh, you, one would think part of the reason that they, if they're going to exceed expectations, part of the reason they would do that is because the bullpen is pitching well enough that you know things are working and you're winning games, and you don't then don't have to adjust because it's working. Then why would you mess with it? So right, you know, right. I, you know, I, I just—it's one of those things. That topic just always interests me. The way that the way baseball used to be thought of, and the way thinking has kind of evolved today. Um, you know, the idea of like the team—you know—the the need to go out and get Jonathan Papelbon versus the expectation that oh well, Jamar Gomez will begin the season as our closer, and we'll see what happens because who the hell knew yeah, that Jamar Gomez was going to be our closer last year. I also think that John, well, once the season starts, Jamar Gomez is not going to be pitching anywhere near the back of close games. I agree. Um, I agree. That, like, but I that's my point. Yeah, yeah, but that's my point is that they, they plucked the name out of a hat last year and he was reasonably effective in a role where you can be even less than reasonably effective and your stats you know, will tell you yeah, that like, you're good. Like I, 
like I think like put Jamar Gomez got very lucky last year. Right. Um like he he he, he the ball he threw strikes that opponents put the ball in play and the ball happened to go where right. Phillies were within striking distance. You, you to me you definitely you can't you can't it's not sustainable to have a guy like Jamar Gomez pitching in the seventh, eighth or ninth innings. You need guys who have big strikeout arms. And the Phillies happen to have three right now with the Drew Bader Ramos, mm-hmm. Joaquin Benoit and Hector Neres. Now with Benoit, there's a huge question about his age. Um, he also started off really, he didn't have a great start to the season last year. Uh, you know, Neres, obviously there's the workload and, and whether, you know, he can, he can replicate last year's performance. Um, and then Ramos, you know, he's still a young guy, but, um, all I'm saying is I just don't think you need to say which one of those three is pitching which inning. I think when it comes down to, you know, at some point uh, Gomez is going to be in the role everyone envisioned for him last year before he kind of had to be in the closest role. I, I agree um, with you wholeheartedly. Which, My only point is the way that we used to think, think about, people used to think about baseball and the way that people think about it now. That's all. You know, I agree. Yeah, the expectation I, would be going into this season. Twenty years ago, the expectation going into the season would be Gomez is the Phillies closer. Why would anybody else be the Phillies closer? The guy had thirty-seven saves or whatever he had last year, and the right, thinking right, has right, evolved right. on that. That's all I'm saying. It's kind of a a fun thing you. that I, I like to to bat around. But I'm I'm with you on with respect to the bullpen and the arms that they have now. You you have three guys who throw really hard, and if they're throwing well, are going to strike out a ton of hitters. They're the guys you want pitching at the back end of a game, you know, in the seventh and eighth and yeah. ninth innings. That's all I'm saying. I got you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay. Let's get to more important matters. Uh, Frenchies or Pete and Shorties? Uh, <laughs> Frenchies or Pete and Shorties? Well, I've only ever been in Pete, Pete and Shorties once, I think, and it's, like, really dark. I, look, I'm not a big fan of Clearwater. Um I'm more of a, I'm kind of a Tampa guy. I used to live in Tampa and it's a little more, um, you know, like it's a little more 25, 30 something. Uh, there's a little more culture over there, I guess. Uh, you know, Clearwater is very, um, I don't know. It's just not like, like when I was in Tampa, nobody ever like went to Clearwater, um, to do anything. I mean, it's, it's like a lot of like chain restaurants. I just, they put Skyline Chili in, I saw on Gulf to Bay. Um, you know, there's like, and Frenchies is all right, but I don't stay at the beach, so I would say neither. I would say, um, um, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, none of the young put it this way: none, none of the younger writer, you know, none of the younger writers hung out, hang out at Frenchies. That's very much like. Oh the, yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, it's, it's like an anachronism in this day and age. But you've also got an old soul, like you love that. You love, well, I, like, I, you I haven't been. To fr- I've been to Frenchies yeah. maybe. Wait a minute, I've been to Frenchies maybe three times in my life. Uh, none since returning to the Enquirer in 2013. Um, but I'm kind of with you. How many you. times have you been to Clearwater? Uh, this will be my one, two, three, four. This will be my fifth time in Clearwater, dating back to when I used to work in Bucks County. Um, so I've only been to Frenchies yeah. three, three times. Like so you have knocked on the Frenchies your last two times? No, I haven't. I stay I stay at the Fairfield Inn right on Gulf to Bay, and I'm all about like work while I'm down there. So I'm, I'm within sure. walking distance of Pete and Shorty's, and they have good burgers and good sandwiches and a decent beer list. So I go there maybe twice while I'm down there. Well, you're a lunch pail kind of guy. I am. You just put your, I, I just put, put on my overalls and my lunch, you know, my lunch pail hat and I'm good to go. I got well, a question. Well, well, Jim, well, Jim Salisbury is dancing on the bar at Frenchies. You're out. You're out. <laughs> you're out. 
You're all outrighting them, outreporting them. That's right, baby. Oh, hold on. JT has a question for you. I have a question, and it might just relate to something you just mentioned. Whose wallet was that? Wallet? What wallet? A a photo surfaced on social media a couple of days ago of a very large wallet on a table all of two days into spring training. I have no idea what you're talking about. Twitter has been abuzz with trying to figure out whose wallet it was. Murph, I, I have no idea what, what we're talking about here. I have no idea either. Well, that was uh, fine. I don't I I don't know. I don't know whose it was. It, it might have been mine. Was it, was it mine? I don't know. Did somebody who whose tweet was this? I believe it was Ryan Lawrence's. I'm looking it up. What I, was the uh, like what was what was the point of the tweet? Guess this, it was Ryan oh, Lawrence's guess it was at the it was here we even I even have the name of the restaurant. Uh it was the Ozona something. It's a southern place. It says, guess the sports uh, writer who owns this wallet. Hashtag Costanza. Uh, well, it was not me because I was not at the Ozona Pig last night. Um, I don't know. That's a great question. It's like, I'm guessing it's like it's, it's like a Seinfeld, uh, George Costanza, Stanza looking thing. A lot of receipts coming out. Yes, that's out. Cor- that is correct. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I can, uh, I can run over there. Uh, I can run over there and ask him. Not that's okay. Like this, this was not a pressing matter to me. <laughs> that we, I felt like we needed to get on this podcast. Wallet size. Although I, I would like to go back and rewatch that episode of Seinfeld. That's one of my favorites. Um, well, I guess what it's pro- uh, the the law. The law. There's a mathematical law that says it, it, there's like a fifty percent chance it will be playing right now since there's always Seinfeld's playing at Seinf- all hours. Seinfeld and everybody loves Raymond. You can get it any time of day. It's it's. Like here's, so what's here's a question. Okay, JT maybe. Maybe you can feel this one, um, right. or more, or Mike. Well, I'm just—I just, don't know that Mike watches anything. Um, you know that was that was uh, on the airwaves after Seinfeld. I sure um, don't. I, I don't either. But we'll see what I I've do. seen. I've seen uh, well, like, Be- what, Beverly Hillbillies. Like, was that on after Seinfeld? <laughs> well, I guess what I'm, my question is like it's been 20 years now that, that, that Seinfeld has just been playing nonstop on TNT um, or TBS, whichever one it is. Like, at what point does it do we move on? to the next show and what will that show be from like our era? Like what's going to replace Seinfeld or, or we, or the, like the, um, like when the aliens find us, you know, <laughs> are, 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 is Seinfeld going to be still playing on TNT on all of our television? Well, I, this might be three years from now, if the rate things are going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, but, here's the interesting part of that is that, you know, the, the sitcom, like in the way it always was, you know, is mm-hmm. is kind of dying in a lot of ways. Like you have, you only have so many things like the Big Bang Theory, or and even that's in syndication now, uh, because you have so much reality TV and you have so much uh, narrative drama that the the whole idea of like a self contained twenty two minute episode of uh, situation comedy really isn't that that's not driving the train anymore. Um, so what shows are out there? How many shows are out there now that would be in syndication three, four, five, ten years from now? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question because it. Yep. I mean, and I think that's why. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm sure that's part of the reason I why shows what, like Seinfeld and Everybody Loves Raymond continually run because you know the people who watch them now were the people who watched them then, and there's nothing come along to replace them because the people after them don't watch I sitcoms. Think, yeah, well, I I think it's almost even more um, like. Like the age of, it's almost like the age of the cultural phenomenon, the, the cultural phenomenon instead, because, you know, back then, 
you know, everybody watched what one of four things every night. Right. You know, right. there was only you know on a Thursday night. You know, and it got to a point where everybody you know conceded Thursday night right. because Seinfeld was- and and whatever they all grew to be so dominant. Uh, friends, yada yada yada. Now. Like, there's even, so many. Even before yeah, that. Every, even before that, yeah. Cosby Show, Family Ties, yeah. Cheers, then Seinfeld. You got now, the, the Walking Dead is running Sunday Night Football close at this point. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, there's just, just not a concentrate. There's not, you know, it's not, there, there are no more water cooler right. um, conversations because the water cooler conversation is on social media and, and you, you all have your own little, uh, you know, social media group that you talk about whatever show you happen to watch. Like, you can't, you know, everybody can't watch The Walking Dead and, you know, Game of Thrones. And, uh, you know, same thing with Sopranos. We're like, no HBO show, would go, no HBO show is ever going to, you know, replace Sopranos because at the time, Sopranos was the only, you know, up, the only show of that ilk. Whereas now you have, you know, uh, Game of Thrones, Shameless, Girls, mm-hmm. you know, on and on and on. I mean, there's just our, our kind of, attention is kind of fragmented. Um, I mean, it's like the same way where there's like no more, um, it's like, I think like what, like you look at Phil Sims, um, or like Troy Aikman's career numbers and it's like, were they ever that good or were they just just on TV all the time (laughs) when they want, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's true. Like no player will ever become Michael Jordan because, uh, uh, you know, Michael Jordan was like on every Sunday afternoon on the, on the, and on the televised game, you know, whereas now there's just so much, there's like an overload. You can't possibly, everybody can't possibly watch everything the way they watched it before. So maybe Seinfeld, will, I guess long story short, until you and I die, maybe Seinfeld will just keep on running on repeat. Although the Big Bang Theory is on an awful lot for a show that's just not very good. <laughs> yeah. uh, it is on an awful lot. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying in the sense that, um, I know that I find that I can't, maybe this is just a function of my job, but I don't watch sports on TV really at all anymore, unless it's, you know, a Sixers game, a Flyers game, uh, an Eagles game that I happen for whatever reason not to be covering. And I've, you know, I have to watch it as part of my job. Like I don't sit down and watch much NBA or college basketball out of pure enjoyment because there's just so much of it that, you know, it's kind of law, you know, it's lost its allure in any regard. Like there's no um, Big East game of the week. There's no Big Monday. There's no, you know, we all know the cachet that Monday Night Football has lost. Um, that sort of thing. I think there's, no, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. So. Hell of a tangent. Well, yeah. So, yeah. What, what, actually, how, now that, now that it's over, how did we actually, how did it start? How did what start? That tangent. Oh, I, it, was my, it was my fault. That we just yeah, we went on. The, it was John had that question about the wallet, and then we went into Seinfeld, and then it went from there. That was my fault. Ah, uh, that was the connection. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Uh, so. No, I don't know where the wallet is. In fact, I, I was not even aware of the presence and significance of a wallet, so I'll have to, uh, you know, look, uh, I haven't been on social media nearly as much these days because every time I go on, it, it depresses me, and I just can't handle it. Um, so I'm kind of out of the loop uh, when it comes to, you know anything that happens on uh, on Twitter right now? Like it's. Uh, I'm finding. Last time I was on Twitter, yeah. I got no argument with Jimmy Kemsky about Pierre Garcon. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. That was like a week ago. Yeah, that was that I was. Jimmy, that was good popcorn. That was good popcorn uh, Twitter right there. By the way, I just kind of sat back and. Well, I didn't even. I didn't. I didn't really realize that. That uh, I didn't really realize we, we were arguing 
uh, until he called me a douche. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like, you know, anytime you're, anytime somebody is wrong about something, uh, you know, they, they, they tend to get worked up a little bit. So I just kind of give them a pass on that. Look, it's man, like, it's tough to be wrong. Go enjoy Tampa. Uh, and, uh, we will see you when you, when are you back? Uh, when am I back? February. I will not be here next week. So perhaps, uh, perhaps, uh, we can, we can rendezvous again. Okay. Um, I'm sitting in a, sitting in a vacant radio booth overlooking, um, well, it's called Spectrum Field Spectrum Field, Field yeah. It, it was always called, it was always called Bright House Field before, um, but yeah, it's uh, maybe we can do it again next week. Um, what, do you, what else are you guys talking about? What's going on? Uh, we're going to deal with uh, the Sixers. No, we're going to deal with the Sixers and the Okafor situation, and um, you know Brian Colangelo and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, man, you kind of like you took a little dookie on Brian Colangelo the other day, Mike. Well, maybe it was today. It was today. Yeah. Um, you're you're spit you're spitting fire. Not the first time. Yeah, um, yeah. We're I haven't, been, I haven't impressed yet. I mean, been I agree, yet. It, 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 it is the kind of thing where you're like, uh, I thought this was, I thought stuff like this was supposed to be Sam Hinkie's fault. Yeah, exactly. Like the the the, the analogy I keep coming back to, and I, I used it months ago in a column about Colangelo was, um, you know, he reminds me of, <laughs> you know, not not to compare the mafia to this to the NBA, but he it reminds me of. Sonny Corleone in The Godfather, where, you know, the the old man has to hit him on the head and say, you know, don't let anyone outside the family know what you're thinking again. Like, you know, it, it, what doesn't bother me that it doesn't bother me that he doesn't talk or that he lies. It's that uh, it's it's so obvious when he's like he's he's showing his hand all the time. And it's so obvious that he's showing his hand that it's undermining what he's trying to do. So how did the Okafor stuff break down? Well, he's are we, are he's we with the, do this now. Or are we gonna yeah, what? Well, um, he's no. Yeah, I, I gotta go. I gotta go. I was. I'm just right. more curious. Uh, yeah, he's. You guys he's, can use this and into your little segment. Yeah, he can just chop it out and pretend it never happened. No, no, no. no. We're not. There's no happen. chopping. There's no chopping. All right. Um, so he's with the team in Boston. He apparently is going to play Wednesday night against the Celtics, uh, per what Brett Brown has said. Uh, and so that's where things stand. By the way, by the way, you have a. We we are a Jew, a Catholic, and a, a Methodist. There there is chopping, if you know what I mean. Who's the, who's the Methodist? Murph. Oh, okay. me. Yeah. Although, yeah. I mean, I'm. A, you get it. You get it. Yep. We get it. We uh, get it. All right. See you, man. Uh, wait, but, but I'm serious. What, what did happen with Okafor? That's what I just said. He's back with the team. Nothing. He has not been traded. Um, this no, but I'm saying, like, why, why was he missing for four days? Because they didn't want to hurt his trade value, and then Colangelo botched the trade. Yeah. There's there's speculation. It's been reported that this was all Colangelo trying to drum up, you know, to kind of fabricate uh, interest beyond just the New Orleans Pelicans <laughs> for Okafor. Oops. That's yeah. embarrassing if that's yeah. what that was. Not so much. Not so much. Yeah. I mean, it, but like, it, it, that, I've never seen that happen before. Like, that, I mean, Not, neither has Nerlens Noel. He literally said that Wednesday morning <laughs> to Keith Pompey. He said it. <laughs> and now, this is <laughs> Nerlens Noel saying, in all my years in the NBA, all four, you know, three yeah, well. or four of them, uh, I've never seen anything like this happen before. So, um, you know, on the one hand, I mean, like, yeah, go ahead. Like, I can understand, if, like, like, yeah, I get, like, again, guys get traded 
I mean, the major league, there's nothing crazier than the Major League Baseball trade deadline. And, like, I've never heard of a team, I've never seen a team, like, not travel a player for even one day because of a trade, you know? Like, like these guys, like, leave the dugout during the game when they get traded, yep. you know? Yep. So um, that's, that's uh, well, let's, hey, Sam Hinkie probably enjoyed it watching from afar. Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm, yeah, I'm sure, sure he, he did. did. So, all right, Murph, well, thanks. Sure you guys will give the people much more. Thank you for, uh, thank you for checking in. All right, man. Enjoy the sun. See ya. And there he goes. There he goes. Um, all right. I got some the, things to say. The, well, all right. Let's, so pick one and say it. Okay. Pick one and say it. I'm going to read, I'll read, in fact, from Keith Pompey's story uh, posted Wednesday morning to, to his Sixers blog. While trade talks continue, the team is not as close to trading the second year center as it seemed to be in recent days. And whose fault is that? Yeah. Look, look, we, we to some extent, we've discussed this before, um, and I've written this before. I, I, there's an argument to be made, and it's a fair one, that Colangelo was in a tough spot when he took over because you had uh, a surplus of players at one position. Noel, Embiid, and Okafor can't play them all together. Uh, you know, In some respects, you have to learn a little bit about uh, each of them to varying degrees. You have to learn whether if Embiid can stay healthy, how good can he really be? You have to learn if Noel... Uh, and or Okafor can play with him, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, the problem with what the way that this has been handled is that, as I said, and I've used that Sonny Corleone analogy before in print, and I think it's a fair one, it, at no time should a person in Brian Colangelo's position be telling people publicly what he really thinks. And for all the heat he's taken over being closed-mouthed and evasive in talking about the injuries to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, in some ways the greater damage that he's done has been being upfront about the fact that well, we have to achieve roster balance, we have to move one of these guys. Well, look, you may want to do that, and everybody from the outside looking in may think you have to do that. That doesn't mean you acknowledge it, and it doesn't mean that you handicap yourself by saying you're going to do it as you said in the, as you said in your column in wednesday's inquire they are saying what they have to say because appearances matter again and this is the part i really love the colangelos the stewards of the sixers handpicked by the nba are here so everything must be different different in one particular way i think mike and you and i talked about this before coming in the studio brian colangelo was hired for a number of reasons High up the list, I can't say number one because I don't cover the team. You'd know better than I do. High up that list was to talk to the media. Yeah, that doesn't bother me so much um, as, look, I didn't, I didn't have an issue with Sam Hankey not talking to the media publicly because the people who tended to complain most about it were people who had went into, quote unquote, covering a team with the expectation that, hey, I have a radio show, uh, I have a TV show, in the past, I've always been able to get the general manager to come on my radio show or my TV show, and now Sam Hinkie won't do it, and therefore, I don't like the fact that he doesn't talk to the media. If you went to a Sixers game, if you were a regular presence at, at games and practices, you could walk up to Hinkie at any time, and he would talk to you on background, he would talk to you off the record, he would, he would say, this is, this is right, this is not right. You could have any kind of dialogue with him that you wanted to have, he just didn't want anything on the record. 
And that's I had no which, issue with that. Which, for the listeners who don't know, is to say he, he's one of the folks who would say a source said this or a source said that, didn't want his name in the paper. Right. And, and, and I had no issue with that. And I also didn't have an issue with it from the standpoint of, okay, even if the general manager doesn't want anything to do with you, then go talk to other people around the league. Don't let that stop you from doing your job. Cultivate other sources. Find other angles to pursue where, that don't require you to talk to the GM. And you'll find out other information. Keith Pompey does that all the time, where he talks to people all around the league. The issue I have with Colangelo is, yeah, he was, you know, the, the, the guys under which he was brought here was to improve relationships around the league, quote unquote. But what that was mainly about was just having somebody who was kind of pre-approved by the culture of the NBA, by the people who matter in the NBA. You know, my point in that column for Tuesday was the Sixers under Hinky were completely upfront about what they were doing. They're saying, we are tanking. We're going to clear the decks and we're going to rebuild this whole thing from the ground up. We are not trying to be good. And what set them apart in that regard was that the, was not that they were a bad team. There have been plenty of bad teams before. They them. were saying it. They were willing to admit it. They were willing to admit it. They're saying, this is what we are doing. We are not keeping up appearances. We are not going to be the New York Knicks, who are doubly embarrassing, not only because they're bad, <laughs> but because they try so damn hard to be good. That's and, what makes and, the Knicks and, an embarrassment. That was, and that was before they threw Charles Oakley out of the Right. Run. Right. So, but, but that approach could not be abided in the NBA right. by, by other owners. Right. So Hanky has to go, Jerry Colangelo has to come in, and eventually Brian Colangelo has to come in. And what does that mean? That means that when Brian talks to the media, there can't be this idea of, well, we're holding Joel Embiid out, you know, because we're playing it safe. Well, Ben Simmons, you know, at this point, maybe it's not the best thing to have him play this season just for kicks and giggles and just to get him out there. We'd rather be prudent with him because the nature of the injury is such that, you know, when you break the fifth metatarsal in your right foot, there's there's a high incident rate of, of that repeating and breaking again. They can't say those things because those are the kinds of things that Sam Hinkie would say. And they're not supposed to be about that now. They're supposed to be about trying to win right now, which they're doing a fairly good job of with the guys they have. So that colors some of their message. Um, you know, with respect to what Colangelo says about... Uh, Okafor and that sort of thing. That's the, the the even bigger issue that I have is that you know you just haven't played this very well. Like you have a guy who isn't a good defensive player and actually harms your team when he's on the floor. You needed to either make a move to 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 move that guy when he was his value was at his highest, or you you can't just come out and say we've got to move one of these guys um, because eventually what's going to out is. The guy who you need to move is Julia Okafor because he's the least valuable of them. Right. And by saying you have to move somebody, well, now the entire world knows that it's Julia Okafor you're trying to move, and they've got you over a battle. And, and oh, by the way, in, in the last few games, when he was playing, he played decently enough that some team might actually take an interest in him, which was the point. Yeah. And I don't fault them for that. But to, to, to see it then and... There have been plenty of rumors over the last, I don't know, week or so about potential trade destinations, actual talks, imagined talks, whatever. There's been mm-hmm. enough of it to know that something was going on. Right. To see it then collapse and blow up in Colangelo's face, I think for for those of us, and I'm us, as you mm-hmm. and Dave are, who appreciated the honesty that Hinky was working with, 
are sort of looking at this as Brian Colangelo getting his comeuppance, and maybe some of the people who thought that he was so great and preferable over Hinky because he treated them better are also getting their comeuppance. Look, I, I've been of the, of the opinion for a while, and I've written this, and people have hammered me for it, um, but I, I stand by it. I would be willing to trade... I would have been. I have been willing for a while to trade Jaleel Okafor for pennies on the dollar, um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you have Rashawn Holmes, who is a better offensive player than Nerlens Noel and a better defensive player than Jaleel Okafor. He can be your backup or a backup to Joel Embiid, assuming Embiid stays healthy. Okay, he's a pretty good player. He's a solid backup player in the NBA. Okay, number two. If you look at the Sixers' performance over the two years that Okafor has been here with Okafor in the lineup, regardless of whether Embiid is there, they are a demonstrably, demonstrably better team without Jaleel Okafor. Yes. That's nothing against him as a person. It has nothing to do with him, whatever happened in, you know, what happened in Boston last year in the street fight. This season, ahead of their game Wednesday night against the Celtics, the Sixers are 10-27 and 27 when Okafor plays. They are 11-7 and 7 when he doesn't. And that again, that's irrespective of whether Embiid is there or not. And irrespective of whether some team might have a room for a player of Okafor's limited right. skill set. They're, they're, they don't need him. Right. They can win games without him. And so just, just move on from him. Look, you know, and we discussed this last week with Derek Bodner. The pick to pick Okafor with the number three overall pick when Porzingis was there has turned out to be a miss. I don't think that has anything to do with anything other than nobody anticipated or few people anticipated that Porzingis would make the immediate impact with the Knicks that he has made, that he was capable of that. I think everybody acknowledged Okafor is a tremendous offensive player. I think Sam Hinkie had no fear about overloading one position because he always felt, hey, if need be, I can I can make a trade and... You know, the odds that one of these guys, whether it's Noel, Okafor, or Embiid, turns out to be a transcendent player, that's fine. It goes, like I mentioned before, it goes back to the mistake that the Portland Trailblazers made in 1984. We already have a shooting guard in Clyde Drexler. We don't have a center, therefore we take Sam Bowie and we pass on Michael Jordan. Big mistake. And the reasoning is flawed. You know, I don't think Hinky feared that. I just think that they missed on how good Porzingis could be as fast as he could be. Uh, but now you have this situation, you've got to make the most of it, and, and Colangelo has failed in that regard. Uh, and and the strength that he was supposed to bring, this you know relationship building with agents and other executives around the league, has not been borne out. He's made, you know, he made the obvious pick with Simmons, he made a good trade in getting Ilya, you know, Ersan Ilyasova, which may or may not have some long-term ramifications and benefits depending on whether you want to re-sign him because Dario Saric, Saric is playing so well of late and seems to be developing into a, a three or four that you can count on uh, that do you even need Ilyasova moving forward? You know, do you want to tie up that cap space with him? So, you know, I've been underwhelmed by Colangelo so far, to say the least. I, I don't blame you. And look, I've, I've said a number of times... For a long time, when I was on this show, you know, as the producer previously and prior and whatever, the NBA, for all its success, I watched the Golden State-Oklahoma City game mm-hmm. on Saturday night, and it was terrific. Um, for all its success at the top, the NBA is broken. And Sam Hinkie was willing to point that out 
publicly, and the other owners didn't want to hear that the product was broken because for very good reason, the television ratings are through the roof when mm-hmm. OKC, Golden State, Cleveland, et cetera, play against each other. I just, I, I look at the Celtics and the Raptors and even the Wizards who are now playing mm-hmm. well. I cannot imagine how they're at the level of the Cavaliers because well, you, I think have that- to, you have to be that. The NBA is about losing to, re- losing to reduce randomness if you cannot win a championship. Right. It's why I've said on this show before, I would scrap the lottery, let it go the way the NFL does. Teams will tank for a couple of years, get their guy, and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Instead of having to play the lottery again and again so that if you lose, you're stuck for another year having, having to be really bad. I'm going to point out something that another of our colleagues said recently, a guy who I see at Villanova games all the time and whose opinions on basketball I greatly respect, mm-hmm. Jack McCaffrey the Delaware County mm-hmm. Times, who said on Twitter a couple days ago, when Okafor was not on the trip to Charlotte, the Sixers are trying to unload the player they tanked an entire season to draft. I'm not sure he was the guy they tanked an entire season to draft, was he? No, I don't think he was. They, they tanked. They never tanked specifically for a player. They tanked maybe for Wiggins, but that was that year. That was as close as a player. Was. I don't think they tanked for Wiggins. Go back and look at the arc of that college basketball season. By the middle of January, early February at the latest, the consensus was that Joel Embiid, if healthy, was the number was the number one overall pick, was the most talented player in that draft. Um, you know, the winless for Wiggins thing. Did they want him? Yeah. Would they would they have been happy to take him? Yeah, I'm sure, but. The notion that they were committed to taking Wiggins above all else, I don't know that that's true. I beg, I got the math wrong on the year it was. The guy they wanted was D'Angelo Russell. Yeah. Not that Wiggins was the, the other year. Right. Uh, Okafor was the year of Porzingis, D'Angelo Russell, and Carl Anthony Towns. They were never getting Towns, obviously. No, unless they got the number the, one right. overall pick. The question was whether at number two, the Lakers would take Russell or Okafor. Right. And for a long time, everybody thought the Lakers were going to take Okafor. Uh, and it turned out they ended up taking Russell. Um, and yeah, the Sixers did want Russell. And that would have been a better pick, both from a productivity and talent standpoint, overall talent standpoint, uh, both in terms of fit uh, and, you know, and all those things. But they didn't get him. And like I said, I think they missed on the—they, like a lot of teams, missed on who Porzingis could be as fast as he could be that that player. That so, draft, man, that was a, that was a draft of players who— have not um, risen to an especially great level taken with high picks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, and you don't know that. I mean, everybody's right. talking about the town and depth in this draft coming up, um, but you just don't know. You just don't know. So, um, you know, we'll see how this goes. I, I, you know, I feel bad for Okafor. I think he's a decent enough kid. I think he's handled this pretty well. Um, what I, I just, I look at the situation now and you say, where does he doesn't fit on this team in any regard, and the rest of the league has figured that out too. So Brian Colangelo just he should just resign himself right. to moving on from him, getting it, whatever he can for him, um, you know. And that whole idea of like not making a bad trade, like dude, you've put yourself in the position where you're going to have to make I, a bad trade. I, right. I I said last year, last summer, etc. It's reasonable to wait, and you know up the ante on other teams to the point where they really, when they, when a playoff contender gets desperate for a player who's got Okafor's skill set, then you can make a deal. This time around, I think Colangelo blew it and 
blew the shot that he had to make that deal. And the person who I feel the worst for is Brett Brown, because again, he is stuck yeah. with a team that is not the easiest for him to coach, that is not necessarily of his own making. And he knows, as does everybody else in town, that for that two-week stretch of eight or nine or ten games or whatever it was, when Embiid was out there on the floor with Sarich, and they won seven out of the ten games or whatever it was, it was the most fun this town has had with the Sixers in a long time. Yeah. And it gave us a glimpse of what can be. Yeah, um, it is. It's a shame for Brett, but he's dealt with a tough situation since he's gotten here, and um, he'll deal with this one too. Um, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to a, um, a guy who covers the Raptors on the radio today, uh, and he mentioned that, you know, when, when the Raptors hired Brian Colangelo as their GM, they were not a free agent destination. And so Colangelo mined Europe for, you know, for talent. Um, and they struck gold with Chris Bosh, and they were able to, you know, win some games here and there and, and be, a, be a pretty good team. But by the time he left, things had kind of soured. And, uh, you know, Sam Dinellon wrote a, a piece about this on Philly.com and in the Daily News the other day about, you know, hey, Brian, this isn't Phoenix. This isn't Toronto. You, you can't hide, you can't lie in the way that, you know, it appears that you might be lying because this is Philadelphia and this is, people care more here and they're going to parse your words and they're going to expect results and they're not going to care more about the Maple Leafs and they're not going to care more about the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, this is a big market that cares deeply about sports in general and, and the Sixers. And I'll, and I'll say this about, about Toronto because that is a team that I follow some. Mm-hmm. If you want to see, if you want to really put Brian Colangelo's work in context, excuse me, don't just put it in the context of Sam Hinkie. Mm-hmm. Put it in the context of Masai Ujiri. Yeah. Who's done a terrific job up there and has made Toronto a free agent destination. Yeah. And convinced uh, Kyle Lowry to stay and various other things. Yeah, but they're not any better. I mean, really, realistically, are they any closer to winning a championship than the Sixers are? I mean, they're banging their heads against the, I think the LeBron ceiling, I think, too. I think they're closer. That doesn't mean they're going to win it, but I think they're, they're, they're closer. In the now, next five years, if, who's got a better chance of winning a championship, the Raptors or the Sixers? The irony of that question is that it could very well come down to which of those two teams Kyle Lowry plays for next. Could be. To be continued. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Murph for uh, checking in from Clearwater. Talk to you next week.